spend more time with rules are not allowed. I wanna find myself lost in the crowd. I wanna travel past the boundaries so far they disappear. Out here, just the two of us, I make friends with my fear. Hey everyone, I'm Jenna Renee Shellman. Welcome to Leading With Your Gut. Leading With Your Gut is a podcast series featuring daring individuals from around the world who share stories and topics about embracing their fears and having the courage to make intuitive gut decisions. I want to note that I think it is wise to use research data, your network, or past experiences to help drive major decisions. However, it is important to recognize when analysis paralysis takes over and disables your ability to have the confidence to make authentic decisions. By maintaining a strong connection with your intuition, you can only gain an advantage yourself. The purpose of this podcast is to empower and inspire you to follow your intuition, trust in yourself, and have the strength to own your story. You will hear from courageous people who defy societal expectations, combat their inner negative thoughts, and use their gut to help guide them through life. The guests on this podcast are not perfect, and neither am I. Leading with your gut embraces authenticity, vulnerability, and the audacity to be truly seen. This podcast is my passion project, and by having the opportunity to create this platform, it has led me on a journey to a meaningful career in professional coaching. Leading with your gut, coaching and consulting is smart coaching for go-getters who want to boost their confidence, pivot from burnout, and live a purpose-driven life, all while honing in to their intuition. After the show, email leadingwithyourgut at gmail.com to receive my free 13-minute video guide on how to use the SMART method to create wellness-related goals that will help you stay focused on your well-being, especially during this crazy time. That's leadingwithyourgut at gmail.com. Website coming soon. Stay connected with me on social media. Connect and follow Jenna Renee Shellman and Leading With Your Gut on all major platforms. On Twitter, it's Jenna R. Shellman. If you are an Apple Podcast listener, please rate and write a review of Leading With Your Gut when the episode is over. Please and thank you. Finally, I want to give a special shout out to Shaw Wild, spelled C-H-A space W-I-L-D-E. Shaw is the musician who wrote and produced the intro and outro song, Delivered to Earth on a Rainbow. You can find Shaw Wild's music on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. All right, let's get started. Stay tuned for an interactive and creative lineup of powerful stories on Leading With Your Gut. Leah Carey believed that she was unlovable and broken after growing up in an abusive household. Leah was often criticized by her father for being fat, ugly, and undesirable even though she wasn't. As an adult, the abuse from her father ultimately caused Leah to feel self-conscious and confused about sex. It wasn't until she had the opportunity to take a solo road trip around America when her life started to change. In this adventure, Leah evolved into a confident and sexually proud woman. In this week's episode of Leading With Your Gut, Sex communication coach Leah Carey shares her story and mission behind her coaching business and podcast called Good Girls Talk About Sex. Nothing is off limits in this episode. If you are not comfortable listening to two women talk about sex, maybe this one isn't for you. If you are comfortable and curious, please hang in there for the next hour. I think you will enjoy our conversation. In this episode, Leah and I discuss quite a bit, such as female body image, sexual abuse and trauma, the objectifications of women, sexual shame and confusion, pleasure, dating for sex, tantric sex, female sexual repression, and sexual positivity. Leah is vulnerable and extremely open about her experiences. 
Through her sexual awakening, Leah has learned to rely on her basic instincts, aka her gut, when encountering new partners and situations to maintain her safety and control. I really enjoyed connecting with Leah. I think that what she is doing as a coach and podcast host is empowering so many people, especially women, to not feel shameful of their bodies or desires. I don't want to give too much of this episode away. How about we just get this thing started? This is Leah Carey from Good Girls Talk About Sex. So I grew up in northern New Hampshire. It's a fairly rural area. My parents owned a country inn. So we lived in two rooms upstairs at the inn. So I had to be quiet most of the time because there were guests around. Because there were adults around all the time, I learned to communicate really well with adults from a very early age, which I think serves me well today. But as far as what my life looked like, it was not great. My father was an alcoholic. He was emotionally abusive. As I got a little bit older, he started telling me that I was getting fat. At the time, I believed him because that's what we do. I have since gone back to look at pictures and realized he was lying out of his mind. I was still skinny as a beanpole at that point. But he would tell me I was getting fat, I was ugly, and that I was undesirable, that no one would ever want me. At the same time, he was speaking sexually to me about my body. He was telling me about his sex life with my mom and how unhappy he was with it. And he was speaking to women who were not my mother sexually in front of me. So there was a lot of really confusing stuff going on in my home. And what I did with that was to really shut down, to say, you know, not going to date. And none of this was conscious, of course. I mean, I would have told you I was boy crazy (laughs) because I was. (laughs) But I also, if anybody looked at me, I was like, no, we're not doing that. You know, I would run away. I didn't have my first serious relationship until I was 25. How old were you when this abuse started? Frankly, it probably started when I was a baby. I mean, because even when he wasn't saying those awful things to me, he was so inconsistent. He was so, you know, like you had to walk around on tiptoes all the time because you could say something today and it would be fine. And then you would say the same thing tomorrow and the world would explode. So there was no emotional stability in our home. But even separate from how he treated me, I watched him being emotionally abusive to my mother from before I was cognizant of what was going on. So that for me was just sort of the landscape of how he lived. Mm-hmm. What were some of the things that he would say to your mom in front of you? To be honest, I have a lot of big black spots in my memory. I remember feelings. I remember just sort of general impressions, but there's a lot of real specific stuff that I don't have access to. Mm. And for a long time, I thought that that was a real problem. I thought that that was yet another indication of how broken I was and that there must be some really serious abuse issues. Like I was convinced for a long time that I was raped or molested or that there was some sort of really terrible sexual abuse because that was the only context that I had ever heard of people having blank spots in their memories. It turns out that it's not actually that uncommon, regardless of what kind of abuse was happening. Do you remember, you know, during this time, how your mom was during this? Did she protect you? Did she try to, you know, fight back with your dad? Or did she try to stay strong? Like, do you remember what she was like during this time? That is a complicated question. And I'll say that had you asked me that question when I was a teenager, I would have a very different answer from my answer today. What I saw was her sort of emotionally disappear, that she would be very present with me one minute, and then the next minute she was gone. Even though she was still in the same room, I had no way to reach her. 
And that as a kid was really, really scary. And I still like that is something that I have a really hard time with in relationship today. If my partner sort of emotionally withdraws, that is really, really hard for me. So I was really angry at my mom through my teenage years and in even my early 20s for not, quote unquote, protecting me from my dad. I thought, why didn't she leave him? Why didn't she take me? There were a hundred things. Why didn't she do any of them? It wasn't until I was in my early 30s. And at that point, my dad had passed away. They had divorced before that. But I think she just really didn't want to get in the middle of any relationship I might have had with my dad. It was a very hot and cold, love-hate relationship. We were estranged for a while. I think she didn't want to place herself in the middle of that. So she didn't tell me until after he had died that when I was a baby, a little baby, and I think she started to see how problematic this whole dynamic was going to be, he said to her, if you ever leave me, I will take Leah and you will never see her again. And he had a lot of very powerful friends He was very involved in the court system. He was a private investigator. He had the means to make a threat like that come true. And so what I realized was she actually did exactly what she needed to to protect me. She stayed. She gave up her life and her autonomy to protect me so that I wouldn't be alone with a madman. So I have just immense gratitude Mm -hmm. to my mom for what she gave up to take care of me. Mm. I have gratitude for your mom. (sighs) Yeah. I do not come from a household of abuse, but I have talked to people who have. And sometimes I will ask that question, you know, why do you think your mom stayed so long? Or, you know, just because I'm curious, that's all. And a lot of the time they come to the same conclusion that it's one, it's either out of fear or it's because it was the best thing at that time that they can do to protect their kids. Yeah. I think it's really easy to be judgmental of people, especially women who stay in abusive, bad situations. And we have no idea what that calculus is. We have no idea. So when was it that you left your household? So my mom in her, again, her infinite wisdom Mm -hmm. that I did not understand at the time, convinced my father that it was his idea (laughs) to send me to boarding school for high school. So it became his project Mm -hmm. to find the school and to get me into the school and all of that. So he and I were no longer living in the same house from the time I was in ninth grade. You know, it was a boarding school that was close. So I went home every weekend. So there was still a lot of contact, but at least we weren't living together 24 7. Once you went to boarding school, did you feel relieved to be away from your dad? Or did you have those feelings at that time? And really, I was, I had no idea. I did not understand. I think I was so much in that push-pull relationship at the time. Like I still wanted to do anything I could to get his love. And I didn't understand yet what that dynamic was. And I wouldn't say that I was angry about going to boarding school because in fact, the school that I had been in was a really bad fit for me. The local public school was at the time, the kind of place that if you were a good student, you had to hide it in order to not be sort of the outcast. And I was a good student. I loved to learn. So it was better for me to not be at that school. So to me, that seemed natural. But no, I did not understand what that thing was that my mom had done for me. Now I look back on it and I thank God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she was protecting you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, after boarding school, Did you go off to college or did you move back home or what was that dynamic like? I went to college and at that point, my parents had separated and then they divorced during my freshman year of college. And my dad 
I went to school in Boston and my dad was living in Boston. Got it. So I ended up seeing him, you know, like not super frequently, but certainly maybe once a month. And yeah, so that was an interesting dynamic at that point. That was the point at which I started recognizing that there was something that was not okay Mm -hmm. because anytime I was going to see him, I was choosing my clothes so that he would have nothing to say about them. I was choosing what topics of conversation I was willing to have with him so that he wouldn't get too deep into my life. I was pre-practicing the things I was willing to share with him so that I didn't give him any entry points into my life. You know, I'm 18 and 19 and thinking, this is not normal. (laughs) Yeah. This is not how I want to interact with people I'm close with. Right. And when you would go over to, like you said, you had these ideas of what you could say and what you couldn't say. And when you went over to go visit your dad, was your thought process, you know, I have to be perfect. I have to be on my best behavior. I have to, you know. I had to be the perfect little girl so that maybe I would finally get his approval. Right. And he would say, I truly love you for who you are. Something. Yes, exactly. He would actually see me. It was only recently in therapy. So to jump way ahead, this is not a political conversation, but it does involve a political figure. When I saw Donald Trump on television, I got really, really triggered as did a lot of females. As do I when I see him too. (laughs) (laughs) And it took me a little bit of time to realize the reason I was getting so triggered was because it was like watching my father on television. My father was a lot smarter, which wouldn't be hard. But I went back into therapy and began to understand that what I was actually seeing in my dad were narcissistic behaviors, Mm -hmm. a lot of gaslighting, I would not post posthumously try to diagnose my father as a narcissist, but I can definitely recognize the behaviors. And that something that came up in one of my early therapy sessions around this was the recognition that it wasn't that my father didn't love me. My father didn't recognize that I was a separate autonomous person. Got it. I was simply an extension of him. And so if I did something good, that meant that he had something that he could be proud of. Right. And if I did something that didn't look good on him, Mm -hmm. then that meant that he had every right to be angry because it was a reflection on him. It wasn't actually about me and whether I had done something good or bad. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going off of that too, I'm curious as to understand in his mind what he thought women should be like, right? Mm. How he thought women should behave and how women should act. You know, because I think about that with Donald Trump. I think he obviously thinks that women are totally, completely beneath men. That's my own personal opinion. And it's very obvious just the way that he treats women and the way that he talks to women and the way that he portrays women as just these sexual objects. But that have to look perfect all the time. And he criticizes them. So I'm curious and I'm wondering if maybe that's how your dad thought of how women should act and behave too. Just for a second to stay with Trump, I think it's really telling that his response to accusations of sexual misconduct are, well, look at her. She's not attractive enough for me to want to do that. Right. And yeah. Okay. I'm going to move on before I get angry. (laughs) But it's okay to um, get angry on the show. Okay, good. (laughs) Because the other thing I need to say about Donald Trump, (laughs) sorry, is that when I say that my father spoke to me sexually and spoke about me sexually, think about the ways that we've heard Trump talk about Ivanka. Mm. If she weren't my daughter, I would date her. Yeah. That's the kind of crap. I mean, it was very, again, my dad did it very differently. It was more subtle and it was usually him tearing me down rather than the way that Trump builds Ivanka up. But the energy of it is very, very similar. Mm, Wow. So how did my dad feel about women? He was really screwed up by his mom. Interesting. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. 
my grandmother, who I met only a few times in my life, I didn't really know her. But the story was that she really wanted a girl. And so she dressed him up as a little girl and called him by a girl's name and treated him as a girl for the first four or five years of his life. Now, I am all about affirming transgender children. I am absolutely on board with affirming children as who they are. And that means that if you have a cisgender child, you treat them like a cisgender child, you know, like treating a little boy who identifies as a little boy as if he's a little girl, that's incredibly damaging. Again, one of the stories that I heard so many times is that he ran away from home the first time when he was two years old on a tricycle and he got several miles away from home before he was picked up by the police. I mean, that is a child who is in a desperately bad situation. Yeah. And was he ever able to communicate that trauma with you? There were moments when he would become self-reflective, but it was always from a very victim-y standpoint mm -hmm. of like, look what was done to me. I understand how hard your life is because look at how hard my life was. Mm -hmm. So that was the level of self-reflection he was capable of. Mm -hmm. Do you think he ever internally healed himself for that trauma? No. And that makes me really sad because there was a glimmer of hope. I would say maybe nine months to a year before he died. I had a couple of interactions with him where I was like, oh, he's on the verge. He's like starting to see his own wounding. And then it disappeared as quickly as it came. And then he died very, very suddenly. Let's move forward a little bit to you living in New Hampshire and your mother passed away. Yeah. And at this time you were an adult, correct? Yeah. This was just four years ago. Okay. I lived in New Hampshire because that was where she was mm -hmm. and we were super close and I wanted to be near her. I never got married, didn't have kids, so I didn't have anything taking me anywhere else. And then she got sick and I was her sort of cancer companion for two years. When she passed away, there was no reason for me to stay in New Hampshire. I had a very small life there, you know. I would have maybe told you it was comfortable, but it was really just familiar and it was not satisfying. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had the great good fortune that she owned her home and I was her only child. So I was able to sell it. And I took that money and I decided I was going to spend, I didn't know, six months, a year, some amount of time traveling around the country by myself. So cool, by the way. <laughs> Best thing I could have possibly done. And my goal was simply to find a new place to live. Like that was my entire idea of this trip was I was just seeing the country. What ended up happening <laughs> was that I also had this profound sexual awakening mm. during that trip okay. that I never saw coming. Yeah. And I joke, but it's actually true that if I had known it was coming, I would probably still be in New Hampshire. I never would have left because I wouldn't have really believed that I was capable of doing all the things that I did. Okay, so you traveled all around the country. I'm trying to envision this right now. Were you in a van? Were you like in no. an SUV or just regular no. car? I was just in my little four-door Hyundai Elantra. So cool. <laughs> and were you like camping? Were you staying at hotels, Airbnbs, or just what were you doing? You know, I had a chunk of money uh -huh. and I decided this is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. I'm going to do that. I am not a girl who likes to feel dirty. <laughs> Like, I need a shower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a camping person. Uh -huh. So I was going to stay in hotels. I was going to stay in the least expensive hotels I could. And then talk about trusting your gut. This was an intense learning experience because at the beginning of the trip, I had chosen the hotel chain. I was going to go to Choice Hotels okay. because they have a wide range of hotels and you can build up points and get free nights and all of that. So I was going to go with one hotel chain so that I could get the perks. And I thought, well, I'll stay in the lowest cost version of their hotels. And so it was very early in my trip. It was just in the first couple of weeks. And I was in Western Massachusetts and I had looked up the hotels in the area and I found the one that was the cheapest. 
I don't remember which one of their brands it was, but it was like a motel style with outdoor halls. What are those called? You know, motels. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And I drove up and there was a big crew of construction workers, male construction workers who had clearly just come off of a job and were all just sort of hanging around a couple of pickup trucks and drinking and smoking and being very loud. I do want to pause here and say that my current partner is a construction worker. So this is not a condemnation of construction workers. It is the fact that there was a large group of men who were being loud and sort of kind of rowdy in a way that was really uncomfortable for me. You um, felt that inside of you probably, right? I As so many it. women do, they feel this like, ooh, something does not feel safe. Felt it so hard, but I had already booked the room. Mm. And so I went into the lobby of the hotel to check in. And the guy checking me in said, okay, used my name. I don't know if he called me Leah or if he called me Miss Carrie, but whichever he did, he used my name out loud. There were two or three of these construction guys in the lobby with me. One of them was right behind me. And the guy checking me in hands me the key and says, okay, you're going to be in room 215. And I thought, you did not just say that in front of these guys. You did not just give my room number. To this lobby of guys, but I had paid for the room. And so I have to go outside. I get my bag, you know, the motel style where you have to walk up the steps and down the balcony. And I know that there's this whole group of guys who have their eyes on me. I could feel it as I walked into the room. I mean, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. But I sat on that bed, curled up in a little ball. I don't know if I slept that night. I just sat there all night waiting for it to be over. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would say a full-on anxiety attack, but it was not pretty, yeah. <laughs> you know. I had been planning to stay a couple of nights there because there were some things in the area that I wanted to see and do. But I was in such a state of anxiety the next morning that I called My mom's best friend is still a close member of my family. So I called her and I just melted down and I told her the whole story. And she was like, why didn't you leave? (laughs) She takes no shit from me. (laughs) She's like, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you go find another hotel? I was like, because I already paid. They weren't going to give me my money back. She's like, I don't care. If you're not safe, you leave, period. You go, you pay for another hotel room. You your, your money back too. And you ask for your money back. Yeah. yeah. I was too far down the anxiety yeah. rabbit hole yeah. at that point mm-hmm. to figure that out. And she was so clear with me. If you don't feel safe, you leave and you get somewhere safe. Mm-hmm. I then had to relearn that same lesson again a couple of weeks later. But the second time I gave up the money and I left mm-hmm. to get to a place where I felt safe. Mm-hmm. It was an expensive lesson, but I was really proud of myself that I learned it. (laughs) Yeah, yes. I'm glad you share that. I feel like I've done that before. I know that a lot of people have done that before where they feel the fear. They feel it inside of their gut of like, this is not fear in my head. This is fear in my gut. But we stay anyways. Do you ever think like why we do that for these situations? I mean, we could technically put ourselves in harm. I'm so glad nothing happened to you. Right. But it could have. And because you felt it, you felt what was going on with the group of men. Do you ever wonder why we do that? Why we stay? I think it has entirely to do with how we're socialized. And this is a big, broad generalization. But as little girls, we are socialized to sit down, be quiet, be pretty, not make any trouble for anybody to take care of everybody else's needs first. It's why there are so many women who are miserable with what's going on in their bedroom because they have no idea they're allowed to ask for anything else. Yes. I don't know. Like, I think that this lesson about listening to my gut and drawing the boundaries for myself of what I'm willing to accept was foundational in me having this sexual awakening. Mm. And was this the start of the sexual awakening or was it like 
midst of it? No, this was before anything had happened. Yeah. I'm just thinking, you know, I sort of referenced the fact that this happened again. I got into another situation where I had prepaid for a week of lodging. And when I got there through Airbnb, I got there and it was clearly not safe. It was absolutely not safe. And I called the guy and I was like, I am not staying. And he said, well, what if I reduce the price? I was like, I don't care. This is not about the price. This is about the fact that I don't feel safe. And he's like, well, lots of other women have stayed there and been fine. Like he really tried to shame me into not listening. And so I walked away. And to your point about you ask for your money back, I was in such anxiety and in my feelings about the whole thing that it didn't occur to me until several days later that I should ask for my money back through Airbnb, at which point the time had elapsed and I no longer could. So it's good to know that we have those options. And also it's okay if you're hearing this and you're like, why didn't I think of that? Because. (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you shared that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Let's go into when you really started having this sexual revolution. Yeah. What was going on? What happened? (laughs) So the sex that I had had previous to this trip was really challenging. First of all, you know, I believed that I was unlovable and undesirable. So that's not a good place to start because that's what my dad had told me. Did you have a lot of like body shaming? Oh, yes. Oh, I had terrible body image issues. And I had been in relationships with a series of guys. I think of them as my three big bads who reinforced those messages, you know, because when we learn certain things, then we go on and we recreate them. It's not rocket surgery. This is what we do. You know, again, when people say, why don't they stop choosing that person? Because that's what you know. I'm not a therapist at all. Is this part of like the cycle of abuse? Like you stay in this like cycle of abuse. Like now you're internally abusing yourself. That's a great question. I am also not a therapist, so I don't know. But I can tell you that my father conditioned me to believe I didn't deserve anything better. Got it. Yep. That the only people who were going to love me were people who no one else would want. Got it. Got it. So I had a lot of really painful sex. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was because I was broken. I thought there was something terribly wrong with me that I couldn't enjoy it. Flash forward, like I'm starting to get interested and feel like maybe I want to look into this and learn something. And I start learning, oh, the reason that I had such painful sex is because I wasn't turned on. And so I wasn't lubricating. Yeah. Like, I don't want to say it's simple. And then there's all this shame around, like, if you can't get wet enough and you need lube, then there must be something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, everyone who is listening to this, lube is good. Lube is your friend. (laughs) (laughs) Let let there be no shaming about the lube. (laughs) But anyway, the first thing that happened was, I had this group of online female writers that I was really close with. And I went to them and I said, I really want to try and do some stuff while I'm on the road. And I was about to go to New York City. I was like, you can find anything in New York. I want to do some sort of like body work around these sexual issues. I've been in therapy most of my life. If I could have talked my way out of this, I would have. I want to do something that's in my body and I have no idea what to look for. And so one of these women suggested that I look up tantric massage or yoni massage. Uh So I did that. And I had a three-hour session with a woman in New York Uh to answer the question that I know is in a lot of people's minds. Yes, (laughs) she tantric massage does include touching your naked body and moving sexual energy. She was not per se, having sex with me, she was doing a massage that moved sexual energy, but she remained a massage therapist. Like there was that professional remove through the whole thing, but it allowed me to have those feelings that I had really never had before. And there was internal, she used her fingers to penetrate me internally. And at the end of the session, she sat down with me and she said, four of the most important words I've ever heard, you are not broken. Oh, 
Yeah. She's like, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women. I know what the sort of standard or common female sexual response looks like. And your body does those things. And I was still having issues around not feeling as much as I wanted or thought I was supposed to feel. And she said, okay, that's fine. You're not broken. You still have some internal blocks around experiencing the feelings. But I can tell you that your body did all of the things that bodies do when they're becoming aroused and when they're going through the turn on cycle and all of that. And that was, that was the beginning for me. Yeah. That must've been an incredible experience, right? To realize that. It was, I don't even have words. I mean, it was profound. It was life-changing. Yeah. Prior to going to her and, you know, having, you know, sexual relations with other people, were you able to orgasm? (laughs) I had what I would call like genital sneezes. (laughs) (laughs) That is hilarious. Like when a body is stimulated and it could be either a penis or a vagina or vulva, there is an autonomic response that happens. And this is really, really confusing as short digression, public service announcement. For people who were abused as children, there is a lot of confusion because they often experienced pleasure as part of that sexual abuse. And it's incredibly confusing because they think, well, then somehow I wanted it. I asked for it. I perpetuated it. It's not true. You have no culpability in the abuse that was done to you. What happens is that when our bodies are touched in certain ways, there is an autonomic response. There is an autonomic pleasure response. Mm -hmm. If you stroke a penis for a certain amount of time in a certain way, it is going to go through the ejaculation process. Mm -hmm. If you stimulate a clitoris to a certain degree in a certain way, it is going to go through the orgasm process. Mm -hmm. But that does not necessarily mean that you are going to have pleasure. So when I say that I had genital sneezes, that's what I mean. Like (laughs) there was a thing that happened. (laughs) There was some energy that got released. Mm but it wasn't pleasurable. Mm. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. So after you went to this woman in New York and now your eyes are open, right? Yeah, they are getting pretty damn open. (laughs) And then what happened after that? Did you then discover you wanted to be a sex communication therapist or what happened? No, (laughs) it was a long process. Well, it feels long. I started turning on my dating apps, which was a really big deal for me. And, you know, I was traveling. So it was very clear to me that if I met somebody, it wasn't going to be for a relationship. It was going to be for sex. Mm -hmm. It was going to be to have some of these experiences that I had never allowed myself to have before. I had never had a one night stand before. Well, to that end, i probably still haven't. (laughs) But like I had never just had sex for the sake of having and enjoying sex. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to have that experience. So I turned on the dating apps and I went on Craigslist personals. Oh my gosh. No (laughs) way. You know what's so funny? I'm fascinated about it. And I've been dying to meet somebody who's done that. Here I am. Okay. Here we go. I have both posted and replied to ads. Oh my gosh. Yes. I think it's really important to have a really strong vetting process, but you need that with online dating, no matter what. Yes. Good point. Yep. You need that with dating, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And I should also say that Craigslist personals no longer exists, which is a terrible shame. Hopefully someday it will come back. I had a strong vetting process and I learned to trust my gut. That was part of the vetting process. You know, like if I placed an ad, I would put a line in it that said, you know, in your reply, you need to do 
three things. You need to give it this title. You need to tell me this thing about yourself and you need to include a picture. If they didn't do those three things, they were immediately removed from the equation. Because if I can't trust you to follow some really basic rules that are in writing, how am I going to trust you to touch my body when the hormones start flying? Exactly. Exactly. I started looking to have some experiences that I had never had before that I had wanted. So I had some threesomes. Like I went out and met people. And I remember I was working with a coach at the time around body image. And thankfully, she's an extremely sex positive person. She ended up sort of taking me through this sexual awakening process. And I remember meeting a guy in Washington, D.C. and going out on a date with him and thinking, you know, he's not my soulmate, but he's cute. (laughs) And there was clearly a vibe between us. And we had said we were going to get together again. And I remember talking to my coach, Jesse, the next day and saying, I think that if we get together again, I might want to have sex with him. Is that terrible? And Jesse's response was, I'm really interested by the fact that you asked, would that be terrible rather than would that be fun? Yeah, (laughs) yes. Good point. Oh, wait, this gets to be fun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Did you feel like, you know, during this experience, your thoughts on sex were changing? They were turning more positive, right? Because it sounds like, would this be terrible? That's a negative thought. Totally. Right. And now you're flipping it to this should be a fun experience. Totally. I didn't realize how many negative ideas I had about sex. I didn't realize how narrow my idea of what quote unquote normal, quote unquote, okay sex was until I landed in a community where I live now, Portland, Oregon, where like my community is full of all of the people, the polyamorous, the swingers, the kinky people, all of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so because it has been so normalized for me, I love being able to open other people's eyes to the fact that this is all healthy and okay. And if that's what works for you, awesome, go do it. Right. Yes. Yes. Wow. <laughs> so during all these experiences, you're learning and you're changing your negative thought process to more positive and healthy one. Are you feeling more confident in yourself as a woman too? And with your body image? Yeah. So that was an interesting journey. At first, it was really scary. I remember being in Maryland and I was visiting a friend who used to be a clinique counter girl. And so I was like, oh, will you teach me how to do makeup? Because I never learned. And so she made me up and then we were like, oh, we should go get mani-pedis, which I had not done before. And so when I walked back into my hotel that night, I had a face full of makeup and my fingernails were painted and I had a panic attack walking through that hotel lobby because I thought I am so visibly female that I am going to be assaulted in my mind. Being visibly female was inextricably linked to being the subject of assault. Mm -hmm. So that was really startling to recognize how closely those were tied. And I'm not going to say it was an overnight process Mm -hmm. to pull them apart. It was not. But over time, what happened was I had these experiences. You know, I started having these sexual liaisons. I would say that in the year of like actual, like going out and having all of the experiences, I had many sexual partners, but I only actually had intercourse with three of them. So I would tell you that I had sex with a lot of people, but that doesn't necessarily equate to intercourse, which may or may not be important to people. So I started hearing the same things over and over and over from people in different parts of the country who had no contact with each other whatsoever. I love your hair. You've got a great ass. I love your boobs. You know, like just hearing compliments in the same words from different people over and over and over began to forced me to question whether my perceptions were actually reality. And then the kicker was that I decided I was going to go to Jamaica 
for five days by myself to a sex resort. <laughs> wow. Wait, so what is a sex resort? Right? I didn't know such things existed either. And in my online research, you know, as I'm looking for things to do and fun to have, I come across this article about how you can go to resorts. There are several of them in the Caribbean that are specifically for sexual adventures. Yeah. The one I went to is called Hedonism. And they have a small portion of their facility that is clothing optional, but the majority of it is nude. There's a nude pool, nude beach, nude hot tubs. I would not get in the nude pool or the nude hot tubs. That just looked a little skeezy for me. But there's lots of sex happening out in the open. There are people, you know, making plans right out in the open to get together later that night and talking very explicitly. All of this is happening like out in the open. People are there to have sexual adventures. I ended up not having any sexual contact with anyone. I was only propositioned once the whole time I was there, and it was clearly not something I was interested in. But what I did was sit for five days on a nude beach among all of the nude people and realize that no one was laughing at me. No one was saying, you're too fat, you're ugly, go inside, put clothes on, you don't belong here. I was surrounded by people of all different body sizes, all different body shapes. And I got to see that my thoughts on body size have changed significantly since then. I no longer think about like big being bad in the way that I used to. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I still had that idea of like, well, there are these 300 pound women who are walking around nude and they are being looked at with desire. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that means that I might possibly potentially be looked at with desire as well. Yes. And I bet <laughs> you were. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been such an awakening feeling for you. It was. It was incredible. I have since here in Portland, we have an organization called Sex Positive Portland. And they do events that facilitated events where people get nude as part of the event, always with consent, you're not required to. But that has been an ongoing part of my healing is the ability to be nude among other nude people and reinforce for myself that my body is just as normal as everybody else's. I love that. I love that so much. Wow. That's so incredible. I want to talk about the moment that you decided that you want to empower other people by being a sex communication coach. So what happened is I mentioned that I had this group of friends online, writers, and I started writing about my escapades as yeah. I was having them. And not just the like purely sexual stuff, but also sort of like the internal processing I was going through. What was I learning? What was I dismantling for myself? And so I was writing for them, you know, sometimes a couple times a week, sometimes it would be several weeks between entries. But at the beginning, I was like, this is kind of TMI. If you don't want to read this, it's okay. If it makes you uncomfortable, it's okay. And they would come back and be like, tell us more. <laughs> Tell us all of the details. They were probably like living vicariously through you. They totally. were honestly probably jealous that you were having these yes. experiences and these realizations. Totally. <laughs> and they would say that. And then I started doing some like real deep dive learning about consent and coercion and things like that. And they were coming back to me and saying, how did we never learn this? Like, how is it that you are the first person who's teaching me this? And I'm, you know, 40 years old. I'm like, I know I'm learning it for the first time in my early 40s too. And the more that I shared my stories with them, the more that they started sharing their stories back with me. And that's when I realized how much we all crave having these conversations, yeah. but we're all too afraid to do it. And to add on to that, we are taught not to do it. Exactly. We are taught not to talk about sex. We're taught not Absolutely. to really learn about our pleasure points. We're taught to suppress it. 
if you go back to sex ed, mm-hmm. not everybody got sex ed, right. but those of us who were lucky enough to uh-huh. get it, here's what we learned. We learned that boys are going to have wet dreams and ejaculate yep. and girls are going to get periods and suffer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying right now because you are so right. And I can't remember who it was. Someone was here the other day and they brought up like that. Actually, they brought up that point. They said, we learned way too much about ejaculation and not enough about like female pleasure. We didn't learn anything we about learned anything. female pleasure. <laughs> We learned that we were going to be miserable yep. for a week out of every month. Yes. And that was our lot yes. in life. And that being a woman sucks. Like, okay, I used to teach fifth grade. And so we taught a week of sex ed. Now it was very scientific because this is the first time a lot of these 10-year-olds are hearing it. So I understand keeping things very, very, very scientific. But even that curriculum, like thinking about it now, I'm like, okay. And maybe this is just me, the way that I was teaching it, which is faux pas on me. But maybe it was very much like, you know, the women are having periods and it hurts and they're bleeding. And I remember it's like the kid's reaction was like, oh, it must suck being a woman then. Exactly. Or, oh, I'm not looking forward to having my period. Yes. You know? Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. Like celebrated. Like it's no. Not- What we do for kids is essentially, again, if they get anything and lots of kids don't get anything. But what we do for the kids who do get something is STI prevention and pregnancy prevention. Mm. It is not sex education. It is not any discussion of how to have healthy sexual interaction. It's not about how to communicate with your partner about sex. There are lots of people who are like, I don't want teachers talking to my kids about, you know, pleasure and sex. I'm like, even if you're not talking about that. There's still this huge dearth of information around how to have a healthy sexual interaction where both people come out feeling healthy and whole. There are ways that we can teach kids to do that that don't necessarily have to be about like you touch her here and then she, you know, it doesn't have to be any of that. Mm-hmm. And to add on to, and like I said, I've been out of the classroom for years now, so maybe the curriculum has changed, but we don't teach boys not to rape girls. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. We don't. we don't teach boys and young men how to treat women. I actually think that a lot of what happens is like when boys say, I didn't know she didn't want it. I actually think that a lot of them are probably telling the truth. I agree with you. Because girls are not taught how to advocate for themselves. Yep. Yep. And boys are not taught how to ask questions. Exactly. Exactly. And I think about what's available on the internet for people who want to watch porn. That's Um, a real problem. You know, a lot of porn, as far as I know, is not an accurate depiction of what a sexual relationship is, I guess. Yeah. So I am not here to poo-poo porn. I think it has its place. However, porn is for a lot of kids because it's now so easily available online for a lot of kids. That is the sum total of their sex education. And so they are learning things like every woman wants you to gag her with your dick and then come on her face. Whether or not that's what the boy wants to do, that's what he thinks women are expecting. Yeah. It's a real, real problem. Mm-hmm. So there are some porn producers who are more female pleasure centric. Erica Lust is a good example. But still, that does not account for the lack of information that's out there. And so I think it's really important that we have people working with teens and even younger. I am not that person. <laughs> you know, it takes a special skill set to work with teens that I don't have. <laughs> but <laughs> There's a whole generation of those of us who grew up without proper sex education, Mm -hmm. who don't understand what it means to advocate for ourselves in the bedroom, what it means to know what we want and ask for it, what it means to say no and not feel guilty, to know what it means that it's not okay for our partner to be coercive and to recognize what it looks like and how to deal with it. So I feel like this is sort of, we are the lost generation in the middle of this. Those are the people who I'm excited about working with. Mm, I love that. We need more people like you. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> Do you work with men and women? 
I primarily work with women, or let me say it this way. I work with people who were socialized as little girls. Okay. Regardless of how your gender looks today, because in my mind, how we were socialized as small people is really the whole ballgame. That is the messages that we carried forward, regardless of how our gender expresses today. So my interest is in working with people who are socialized as little girls. It's not that I don't want to work with men, but I haven't figured out. And in fact, I have a lot of men showing up who want to consume my material, but I haven't figured out how to feel like I'm in integrity serving them, given that I did not grow up being socialized as a little boy. So like everything that I know about that is from reading and from conjecture, you know? Right. Yeah. I'm still sort of trying to feel out that. Mm -hmm. Got it. And how long have you worked now as a sex communications coach? So I've been doing this for about a year and I've had the podcast for a little bit over a year and I love it. My favorite thing is group coaching, bringing a small group, like six women, or six people into an online setting where they can really share what's going on with them. Like I can coach them and they all get to hear each other because what ends up happening is like, I think there's a lot of value, obviously to one-on-one coaching, but you only ever hear your own story given and received Mm -hmm. when in group coaching, especially on this subject, you get to hear other people talking about aspects of their experience that you might not think to delve into on your own and get to hear, oh my God, that's, I experienced that too. And I thought I was the only one. I didn't even know to talk about it because I thought that that was just the way it is. That's this beautiful thing that happens in group coaching where they get to hear each other and learn from each other. I love everything that you're doing. I'm sure you've had a lot of great impacts, right? And a lot of great response from the coaching and from your podcast. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where people listen to the podcast and I get messages from them saying, this is life changing. And I recognize that I'm the one creating the space for it, but I don't want to take credit for that life-changing piece because I'm not the one who's telling my story. Well, I tell my story some, but this is other women telling their stories of their sex lives. And again, it's over and over hearing your own story reflected back to you, hearing someone else tell a piece of your story that you didn't even realize was there to be told or hearing people normalize something like so frequently some of the most popular episodes are the ones where people come in and talk about their kink relationships. And I think it's because there are so many people out there who want to explore kink and think that it is a step too far. You know, like if I talk to my partner about this, they're going to walk away from me. Or if I explore this, that makes me a bad mother. Or, you know, there are so many different voices. Yep that go with that. Mm -hmm. But to hear these totally average women, I mean average simply because I don't want to say the word normal as if there is an abnormal, Mm -hmm. to talk to these women who are living extremely common average lives, say, yeah, I really like getting tied up and, you know, and hit with a flogger. Yeah. That normalizes it to the point that other women can start voicing that desire for themselves as well, instead of feeling like there's something terribly, terribly wrong with me for wanting this. Right. And what a beautiful space to create that. I love it. I can tell the way that you're glowing. I can tell that this is your purpose. This is your calling, which is so incredible. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. We have been talking now for over an hour. Oh, (laughs) I swear this happens all the time. I'm like, one of the reasons why I love this podcast is because I want to create a space for people to share their story, right? And I love stories and I love hearing how people got to where they are. You know, we talk a little bit about intuition and gut, but I guess what does it mean to you to follow your gut or to lead with your gut? It's something that I had to learn a lot about while I was going through this journey was learning that it was okay, that if my gut was saying no, even if all indicators 
if every other thing appeared to be pointing to yes, if my gut said no, I had to follow that because my safety was on the line. My physical safety, my sexual safety, my emotional safety. I was putting myself into situations that were not everyday situations. And I had to listen Mm -hmm. because if I didn't, I could potentially get in real trouble. And I think it's really important for me also to say that it's not foolproof. You know, like just a couple of weeks ago, I deal with anxiety and I have been going through a period of very high anxiety recently. And I decided that I was going to take a trip out of town. A friend offered me a, her apartment for a week. And I thought, well, if I just go somewhere else for a week, if I get away from, you know, my apartment where there are all of those distractions, you know, if I just go somewhere and I can work for a week and get really focused, maybe the anxiety will lessen. And from the moment that she made the offer, my gut was saying no, but every other indicator was saying yes. And my anxiety was so high that I wasn't sure if that internal no was actually my gut or if it was just fear prompted by the anxiety. And so I went. And again, nothing bad happened. But it was very clear to me from the moment that I got there that I should have listened to that no. Interesting. And that even in my anxiety periods, I need to listen. Mm-hmm. To the no. I'm glad you brought that up because I struggled with anxiety for years, right? And I have noticed that when my anxiety is at a peak, it is in full blown at its manic state. It is really hard to listen to my intuition because all my anxiety is, is just my ego, as Eckhart Tolle likes to say, right? It's just your ego feeding you all of these thoughts of what you should do, what you need to be doing, and then also negative thoughts too. And it's really hard to turn off, at least for me. When I'm in that pattern of anxiety and then stop and listen and listen to my intuition. So I'm glad you brought that up. I always think it's really important for people to hear that there's not like a lesson and you learn the lesson and then you are healed. Like that's just not how life really works on this sexual journey. It has always been two steps forward, one step back for me. It continues to be that way. I am not, you know, I recently did a storytelling thing. And the point of the story was that we have this idea that you're either broken or healed. I am neither broken nor healed. Mm-hmm. I'm somewhere on those 10,000 steps in between, just like everybody else. Yes. I love that. I love that. My friend, Sarah, who was on the show and she talked about grief, she said something super profound to me. She said that Grief is lifelong. Mm. She's learned a lot about grief through her experiences, but I never thought of it like that. I thought, oh, when you're sad or when someone dies, you grieve for a few days and it's done and you shut it down. Mm. But it's the same thing. It's grief is lifelong, right? People who have traumas, you're in the process of healing through a lifelong journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Any advice that you can give to people right now? On any particular subject? Well, about sex. So maybe (laughs) maybe people who are confused about pleasure, confused on how to communicate, what advice would you give to them? Well, so I think the most important thing for most people to hear is that you're normal. Because that's, yeah, that is the most frequent question I get. It's either like, I'm interested in X. Am I normal? I feel this way during sex am I normal? There are like a million different ways that that question comes, but the answer is yes. Hurting other people with their consent is absolutely fine, but hurting other people without their consent, that's the only thing that's off the table. Yep. If your desire is to hurt other people with their consent, you're normal. If your desire is to never do anything but missionary position ever again in your life, you are normal. That is simply what your body is asking for and your soul is craving. If your desire is to have sex 12 times a week, you are normal. You're not perverted. If your desire is to never have sex again, not because you have some terrible trauma, but just because it doesn't interest you, you're normal. Mm. You are normal. Mm. 
we can have conversations about how to go about getting those things that you desire in a healthy, fulfilling way. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you desire those things, you're normal. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. How can people find you? Well, first, come listen to the podcast. Yes, Good girls talk do. about sex. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's really awesome. <laughs> so yes, Good Girls Talk About Sex on all the major podcasting platforms. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Good Girls Talk. And my website is leahcarry.com. Wonderful. This has been an incredible conversation. I hope I hit on everything we wanted to talk about. Is there anything else that I missed? It seemed good to me. Okay. Okay. I always want to ask my guests that because I want to make sure that they're able to tell their full story. But I want to thank you so much for sharing your story and being vulnerable and having the courage to do so. Thank you for sharing your past trauma and thank you for sharing the details with your family and with your dad. I really appreciate it. And I know that your story is going to resonate with listeners. And I know that they will feel empowered and they will probably say like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. I'm not alone in all of this and any of this. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, One more time, listeners, please go to Good Girls Talk About Sex is available on all the directories, major directories. All the major. Click subscribe. It's a great show. Fantastic show. And please follow Carrie at Good Girls Talk on all the major social media platforms. Yes. Thank you so much, Jenna. This has been such a joy. Thank you for listening to another episode of Leading With Your Gut. Music by Shaw Wild. You can find Shaw's music on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, please email me at leadingwithyourgut at gmail.com. Thank you and happy listening.